Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. G'day and welcome to Farms Advice Podcast where we talk everything agribusiness. If you haven't done so already, smash the subscribe button and give us a review on Apple Podcasts so that we can hit other farmers with valuable content on the go. Now, for this week's podcast, we're introducing the very first sponsor to the Farms Advice Podcast show and into our community, especially to help farmers build and grow and also find the opportunities within their niche sector. The company is Byfields, their business advisors based over in Western Australia. First of all, I'd love to thank them for seeing the value in the podcast in sharing information freely which leads to better relationships within agriculture. They share the same commitment of what I've created here with the podcast by creating a transparent industry, driving efficiency and lifting productivity for Australian farmers for my own circumstances and also for yours as a listener of the podcast. So please help share this episode. It's really good to speak with Byfields and have them on board backing the podcast for the second series for this year. So a very warm welcome to the series of Beyond the Tax Return. John Bush is speaking on this episode. He is the BDM Business Development Manager and is full of knowledge and passion to improve the position of farmers in Western Australia and also Australia as a whole. Based in WA, they're bringing you the updates from the West, but I'm sure you'll find they're relatable right across Australia. So let's get into it. Today's a very special podcast. We have our sponsor introduction with Byfields and with John Bush joining us on the other end of the line. John, how are you going today? Yeah, good, Jack. Couldn't be better. I've got a cup of tea and I'm having a chat to you, so all things good. Amazing, mate. And we're all working in agriculture, so things are looking up. They are. So it's 2021. You've come onto the podcast. Can you just tell us about Byfields and what you're doing to improve farmers' outcomes? Yeah, Jack, look, um, I'm really happy to be involved in this and Biofields are. Um, you know, I think your vision dovetails quite well with what we do. Um, we're all passionate in this uh, accounting practice um, about agriculture. You know, many of our directors and staff, um, if they don't come from a farm, uh, you know, they've got strong ties to the ag industry and were born and bred in the country. Um, and we've taken a fairly strong view to um, employ quality staff uh, from the bush mainly um, 
so that where we have a strong, vibrant firm and, and uh, I suppose that um, education to growers piece is, is really what we're about and education to the industry, you know, passing on knowledge. Um, and that seems to be, uh, yeah, your vision, which um, we, we certainly appreciate. And I suppose it's a bit cliched, but uh, just try to take each day and each month and each year, you know, we, we try and leave the industry in a better place than what we found it. And um, I think we've got, uh, yeah, a huge responsibility um, to do that because um, after all, you know, growers like you, Jack, are, are putting food on the plate. Yeah, definitely. I think what you said there was passing on that information. There's going to be a huge shift in gener like a generational shift coming up from my father's age down shifting to younger people like myself and others out in the industry at the moment. So thank you for coming on board. It's great to have Byfields coming on and good to see that you can see the value in there. So there's actually some substance there moving forward. Yeah, no, it's great, Jack. Thank you very much for the invitation. But it's amazing. So we'll get into what you do as a firm, but also what we can look forward to coming up, working together with Byfields and the Farms Vice podcast. Yeah, sure, Jack. Um, look, uh, Byfields Business Advice. Look, we've we're uh, we're somewhat a typical public practice firm, but uh, I suppose what makes us a little bit different is we've got this specialisation. Um, you know, like 60% of the, of the clients on board are, are growers, um, you know, and then even there's a strong proportion uh, with the balance sort of being either regional-based businesses or uh, they're involved in servicing the ag sector. So it's fundamentally our, um, you know, it's our space that we play in. And, um, you know, not only, I suppose, the typical, um, you know, uh, wheat, sheep, um, grower but you know we've got some pastoralists and whatnot in there so but I think um, what uh, we, where we sort of sit and probably why we're excited to um, join this podcast um, is um, yeah we want to spread the message and we kind of sit in in a unique spot in our marketplace particularly here in WA um, yeah, it's a unique presence. You know, we're big enough in the industry uh, here to uh, make a difference. And, you know, we're big enough to have uh, specialists in the practice that can um, tackle those complex issues. You know, like we've got a separate self-managed super, superannuation team. Um, but, you know, we're big, but we're also small enough to be personal to our clients, you know, not make clients a number. Um, and... I suppose probably the, the, the easiest way to explain that, um, like to put it into practical terms in relation to the marketplace is, you know, we've got RSM, um, who many of your listeners will be aware of, you know, national firm, you know, they're $212 million of revenue, 1,200 staff. We here in WA, you know, there's a, there's a big drop down uh, to us. We're sort of second in line there with, you know, 11 directors and 95 staff and eight officers. So, um yeah, we sit underneath the big guys, but then interestingly, then there's a big drop off to uh, the smaller uh, uh, practices and those smaller practices are typically your sole practitioner or two or three partner firms and they've got small specialisations in ag, some of them. Um, there's also some of the big players which have got very small client bases and I suppose they don't have that specialisation that we really have, that understanding of farm businesses and, you know, really also not farm businesses, but the people that are behind them. Um, so I suppose we, yeah, we spend most of our time um, really going beyond the tax return and asking those important questions. And, uh, you know, some of the things that you've been uh, tackling on these podcasts in the past, you know, um, should we buy or lease the block next door or, uh, you know, what tax planning measures should we instigate? Um, things like, you know, if we've got the right uh, structure in place for the business, you know, partnership, a trust or a company, or even to the extent of, you know, are your wills up to date or do they even meet your wishes? You know, I think these are the real questions, right? You know, that the growers really want to know. And I like the fact that you're tackling this. Yeah, I think it's a really important area to tackle. It's good to see I've got a bit of expertise behind me now with 
the team at Byfields, I can actually provide more value and more trustworthy value than just my word. But it's what you said, it's beyond the tax return, trying to improve the bottom line of farmers and also looking for opportunities within their own enterprise where they can grow and how they can improve their outcomes like within the year, but also long-term. For sure. Yep, for sure. That's that's exactly what we're about, Jack. Well, it's good to have you on board. Thank you very much. So we'll get into it and just talk about what's going on with land values at the moment and agricultural production over in WA. Yeah, Jack, um, I'll give you a bit of a rundown. Maybe we'll start to, uh, for those listeners, um, you know, over east that maybe not so familiar with um, WA here. Uh, I'll probably start off with a bit of geography and then go into, yeah, I suppose the average grower profile and then give you a bit of information about those seasonal observations. And then we'll probably leave the land piece to, to last. So, um, yeah, we'll start off with the, I suppose, the traditional uh yeah, the, the grower here, you know, our wheat belt, uh, it extends from Geraldton down to Esperance, about 1,200 kilometres. Um, and we take, uh, we take uh, those within that wheat belt region and we, um, when we're talking about them, generally we split them into different rainfall uh, zones. So to give you guys a bit of an understanding, you know, our higher rainfall in, the, in both north and south regions is, is sort of that 450 to 750 annual rainfall, um, whereas the lower guys are sub 325, and that medium, you know, sits in between there. It's at 325 mils to 450 mils. So hopefully that gives you an idea of the expanse and the rainfall. Um, yeah, the, the grower profile, like, Farms have been uh, getting bigger. There's no doubt about that over time. Um, you know, we're probably the average growers approaching sort of that 5,000 hectares arable. Um, and I think it's currently at about four, six, four, seven or something like that. Um, and the number of growers are reducing. Um, you know, the official stats, CBH, um, which is our bulk handling um logistics over here uh cbh sort of quote about four thousand, but it's probably really more likely three and a half thousand when you um edge out i suppose some of those smaller hobby farms and and those that have got um you know grower numbers that are that i suppose don't really make sense so yeah three and a half thousand it's reducing number it's not a straight line fashion like i remember when i came in um when gst was introduced i seem to remember that there was something AWB reporting, you know, um, around that 10,000 mark. So, but right. um, yeah, it's reducing, um, not straight line. Um, and the majority of the operators are sort of around about an 80-20 split um, in you, if when you think about uh, revenue. So 20% livestock and 80% grain production. And yeah, that's probably a pretty good profile of what's, um, what's happening um, there of the, of the growers. Um, I look, Jack, I love stats. So I'm, I'm diving into numbers here. So, uh, you know, some of them I'm, I'm hoping they're going to make them meaningful to you so you can get a bit of a picture for what it looks like. But, um, you know, we, we sit a, we've got one winter crop, um, planting and, and that sits fairly, uh, average over all of the years over the last 10, you know, it's, it's eight, it's about 8.3. Um, and, you know, we the, the probably the one change that we're seeing is is probably the mix of uh, crops. So the rotations are changing a little bit over time. Um, and then, you know, where do we sell our grain? You know, it's it's mainly export. Um, you know, there's there's some sold domestically um, to the likes of uh, you know your broiler growers like Ingham's and and Bayarda and and whatnot. Um, but most goes um, export. And to give you a bit of uh, I suppose a picture of the size of the crop. I think last year was fifteen point one uh, metric million tons, and out of what did we have? Fifty five for the for Australia. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that gives I suppose hopefully a bit of a grower profile. Um, and then look, probably moving on to some of those um, seasonal 
um, observations and what's happening over here and I suppose the reaction of the, the growers over, um, I suppose, both short-term and long-term. Um, it's obviously difficult to talk about uh, the whole um, the whole wheat belt because there's the different rainfall zones, but I don't know if I take, let's say, uh, York, which is about 100 k's east of Perth as one example and maybe further east in, in I suppose, the easterly straight line from um, Perth again, you know, Hyden, which is about 370 kilometres east, and that gets to that edge of that wheat belt there. Um, you know, I think we've had in, for both of those areas, we've had in the last, uh, this is probably the fourth year running, I think, that um, we've got that confused rainfall at the moment. Um, and what I mean by that is, is it's kind of these thunderstorm events coming through and, you know, we're one month early to be of real use. Um, we'll note that, uh, you know, the lighter country out east does handle it better, holds it, um, the heavier, yeah, not so not so well. And the heavier is that York area, lighter yeah. out at Hyden. So, um, yeah, the, the rainfall events in this, in this little quarter here from January to March are changing. Um, and we're noticeably changing. We're, we're getting um, these higher rainfall events in sort of um, late January, early February. Um, this just gone, you know, York had over um, a three-day period, about 110 mils. And when you look back at the averages, it's only, it's only traditionally over a longer period than 10 years. It's 85 mils. So, yeah, more rain in this, in this period. And it's kind of a, a confused rain. It's coming in. Not not really where we where we want it. Uh, like look at Hyden is the same sort of example. You know, March rainfalls. You know, Jan to March rainfalls about seventy five mils, and then when you look at the ten year averages, it's it's probably only sixty. So people are reacting to those, uh, or the growers are reacting to that um, that seasonal change. Um, the overall rainfall uh, for the year annualized is is reducing it's just now coming in different times this rain now and obviously guys are um, getting out with their boom sprays to get a knockdown but they're somewhat struggling with that because um because of this timing of the rain you know they, they prefer it a little bit later so they can get that good knockdown so we're finding now at the moment like cape weeds somehow managing to survive through to may um and there's been some temperature shocks um, and ryegrass is fairly abundant this year. So um, I think the management, the risk management around, um, yeah, chemical um, is certainly um, is certainly something that's um, been changing over here. Um, and, uh, yeah, really at the moment in terms of the setup for the season, we're probably, look, most growers that I'm hearing um, – and I'll preface a lot of what I'm saying here is, is I'm not an agronomist and neither am I a um, management consultant. It's more uh, what we're hearing um, from farmers and what we're seeing as well um, is, is this commentary. But, um, you know, most of the guys that I've been talking to in the last recent while, are, you know, if they get a double digits figure in the next, um, in the next couple of weeks of rain, they'll, they'll get the bar in and, and off they go. So, um, and then probably a little bit further on, on sort of the rainfall side of things. I think I, look, the WA grower I've always found has been uh, generally fairly um, innovative and uh, they're very efficient in growing grain um, on the annualised rainfall. Like we use, I suppose, a bit of a benchmark of that efficiency, um, that water use efficiency. So generally speaking for wheat, we're, we're benchmarking to 15 kilos um, per millimetre. Um, and the top 25% of growers are generally hitting that mark um, quite regularly. But it's the gap down to the, uh, to the bottom 25% of growers, which is a little bit of a concern. You know, like they're five kilos off that mark. Um, but, um, you know, I, I think uh, technology and analysis uh, is starting to step in and people are getting smarter about what they're doing. Uh, like an example at the moment is probably in the last few years is um, those soil amelioration techniques. You know, guys have been constantly putting down lime and gypsum, um, you know, uh, and then on um, 
I suppose on the tillage side, deep ripping, um, there's a lot of guys with reefinators and they're spading. Um, you know, they're trying new things and new practices because um, we've had long periods of uh, of that no-till, you know, just using opening openers. Um, so that long-term effect of no-till has, uh, you know, guys are trying to rethink to the extent, Jack, I reckon at the moment it's... Um, I reckon it's a bit of a competition who can burn up the most diesel in a paddock and, and, uh, and um, you know, how many tracks you can, uh, you can roll off a uh, tractor, you know? So yeah, they're, they're probably the observations I'm seeing from a cropping side. Yeah. Well, those deep rippers definitely don't waste any diesel, do they? Yeah. The they don't at all. Yeah. They don't at all. Um, but, you know, I think that we're seeing um, a lot of good results, you know, uh, we most a lot of guys use the um, use the DBS bar here, um, and if they're getting treff land in effectively um, and getting the crops, um, you know, roots down further um, from yeah going through and deep ribbing, it's it's been a pretty good result. You know, chasing those trace elements and whatnot. So yeah, from a cropping side, I think yeah we we're always trying new things over here and. One thing I suppose that uh, I suppose one message maybe um, is that a lot of that, um, yeah, we've got a strong um, ag consulting and agronomy um, industry here. Yeah. Um, certainly different to the East Coast in terms of the management consultants, the ag consultants. Um, we, we've got far more over here. Um, and I think part of uh, yeah, what's happening um, and these decisions that are being made is is can be attributed to them. I'm not saying everything, um, but I'll, I think um, from the growers' perspective as well, we've also got a very strong grower group present presence here. So there's a lot of um, there's a lot of very progressive groups, you know, that meet and talk quite openly about what they're doing and try and work together. Um, you know, they use that network of knowledge. And, yeah. and go and apply it and they're not afraid to make mistakes you know and talking about talk amongst themselves um yeah these these grower groups are um fantastic here and we're very lucky what we get the privilege of going and talking at a few of them and um i suppose it's again this message we're just trying to spread a bit of the word spread a bit of the knowledge and yeah we we enjoy doing that yes yeah, how you do it and before podcasting that's how farmers could readily improve themselves meeting up with their local region of farmers. If one stuffs up, six others learn from his stuff up and hopefully they don't stuff up yeah. as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't know, like uh, your last question to you, Jack, here, do you find the, the Ask Twitter um, uh, theme is is building over there? Or is, like, has it got a bit of presence? It certainly has here. Like a lot of, we'll find a lot of the younger growers will use Twitter to just ask all kinds of, yeah, agronomic questions and, and whatnot. Yeah, it's huge. Like on Twitter, you see some young blokes ask um, a question about his tractor or something. And then like another thread with a concert singer and the one about the tractor's got a lot more going on than what the concert does. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's funny that, yeah. 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 Uh, I suppose it's a function of where society's going a little bit. Mm. Yeah, well, um, go on. Yeah, I was going to move on to the livestock observations. Yep. If Yeah, if you'd like, Jack, yep. if that's okay, because that's a that's an interesting that, – that and the land prices is quite interesting at the moment. Um, so uh, the from a livestock perspective, uh, so our flock's about 14.3, 14.4 mil, Um yeah, uh, that's a sheep flock, um, and that's diminishing. And we've probably seen that really diminish. It's probably been happening for the last 20 years, uh, in my opinion, sort of seeing numbers drop. But really in the last three years, um, particularly in the last little while, as you guys have come out of uh, drought over on the East Coast, um, you know, we're seeing... We're seeing people, I suppose, this accelerated um, reduction in numbers because you know anything with legs and a head on it um, over here is going for 140 bucks. And yeah. the other thing is, is they're they're, they're um, uh, most most beasts are going on on the truck. So you know a B double is being filled because to make the trip worthwhile. Um, 
so you'll there's a there's a large um yeah large movement of um sheep over east but uh, that's not uh, the only um i suppose factor and we we could sit here for yeah a couple of hours um yeah, chewing over the different factors, you know, like this labour constraints, you know, live export market, um, you know, the wool markets generally flutter um, into positive, but they never hold steady, maybe like the meat market. Um, I think there's growers that are targeting um, some of their uh, country to, to better set it up for cropping. Um, some of the Blue Ribbon areas sort of down south are moving into cropping as the uh, climate dries. Um, yep. You know, there's costly infrastructure spends, and here's another generational. Um, as you'll go back to the, uh, the infrastructure spends, you know, we've seen very few uh, 50 year old, 60 year old shearing sheds being replaced because of the dollars involved. But um, just going back onto another generational transition, I think there's also a change in attitude. I don't think we can let that go by. Um, you know, I heard, an, I heard a young grower the other day say to me, um, you know, if it if it doesn't have any keys in it, I'm not interested. Like, just not interested. So, I think there's a bit of yeah, there's a bit of attitudinal change there, and, and that's contributing to it. And look, I'm not. Um, this is not doomsday. You know, for the sheep, um, for the sheep industry over here. Like, I think that um, you know, uh, in the longer term, that there is a, a place. Um, in farming enterprises for them. Um, but, um, yeah, we're certainly seeing, yeah, pretty big decline. And um, I think it's not always the outside uh, factors. I think there's also um, some uh, reasonably well thought out management decisions here that are, that are taking place um, and playing out. And I think that it's, um, it's much around, um, yeah, risk with these seasonal factors that we were talking about before with the, uh, timing of rainfall. Um, you know, I heard Alan Kohler say the other day, I don't know where he got it from, but, you know, risk is the known unknowns and uncertainty is the unknown unknowns. And I think that a lot of our growers over here are uh, very uh, very analytical. They recognise the dif difference between risk and uncertainty and they know that they can manage risk. Yep. So I think for an example, like a grower here in the Eastern Wheat Belt, like they know that they can make some money on, you know, let's say 200 mils of in-season in rainfall, um, you know, a bit of summer rain, they can make some money off sheep. Um, um, with 150 mils, uh, they know that they have to have those, you know, feedstocks, um, you know, in the background and it's costly exercise, difficult to manage, um, you know, and when they're taking the view that they've got to get those fat lambs off the, off the, um, off the place, you know, by the end of September, it's, a, it's I suppose it's got its own logistical and, and challenging um, factors to it. So I think what they're what a lot of the guys are saying that, well, it's actually an easier risk to manage. You know, if we've got 150 mils um, in season rain and we've got a 10 and 15 mil um, start to establish the crop, um, then we're more likely to make a return. So I think generally speaking, the, the growers here are actually, it's not just of its own making because of external factors, it's actually they're making a conscious decision. Um, and that conscious decision is having a reasonable uh, flow on effects as well in the industry, like all of the industries that support, you know, the abattoirs are, uh, that, that, that's going to be an interesting, um, yes, yeah, space to, to watch in the next little while. Like we've got Whamco and Fletcher's here that are pretty big. They obviously yeah. need some sort of level of throughput. Um, and, you know, some industry experts are saying that we're maybe possibly hitting that tipping point of um you know where that break even point is so yeah i suppose watch this space here the the lives yeah the the sheep um sheep space is a pretty interesting spot to watch they say like in the next five years you think restocking um if we can get con some consistency around the rainfall yeah, look, I think there's, there's all, like I said before, there's always a place for sheep in an enterprise. Um, but it's the, 
elasticity issues that yeah. that go with it. You know, like if you take the self replace route, um, you know, it's going to take time first, um, and then if the prices are where they're at, that's a seriously demotivating factor. Um, so I think it'll yeah take price um, and a bit of time for it to build back up. Yeah, well, hopefully I was at Bendigo Sheep Show a few years ago, and WA sheep were towering over all these East Coast sheep. Yeah. So they're breeding big out there for sure. They but, do, yeah. Mate, this year's flying through. It's already April April first, recording today, and coming into the end of the tax year. As a farmer planning your tax year, what should we be doing and how can we improve? Um, trying to encourage farmers to get back in the office and do that little bit each week. Bit of consistency yeah. there as well. Look, tax planning is fundamentally one of our cornerstone um, yeah, services and, and one that we, uh, that we do um, encourage like in terms of like we've trained clients over over the years that I'd say that there'd be a very small percentage across the grower group here that don't have a tax estimate prepared. So first thing is is just accept that it's um, something that's important to do. You know, there, there's dollars that can um, yeah uh, go out the door if you're not um, if you're not keeping an eye on what's going on um, from your tax planning um, from a tax planning viewpoint, but I say that in the same breath as saying that uh, I think a lot of people get tied up in tax and make it a primary uh, factor. Um, you know, the classic is going and, and buying a bit of um, paint um, and, uh, you know, a new tractor or a header or whatever to solve a tax problem. Um, and with the accelerated depreciation uh, this year, um, particularly, that was something that, you know, we've been talking to machinery dealers, like there's just, yeah, there's gear, um, gear shortages at the moment and, and stuff going out the door. So I suppose my message there is, is economic decisions first and tax, yeah. it comes secondary. That That's an absolute must. Um, and I think another thing that um, gets, uh, uh, gets, forgotten um, quite often is is in the first place is making sure um, that your structure is correct so you, I'm talking about your business structure here um, you know is it right for your circumstances um, you know like a, a classic example would be I uh, picked up a, um, a new grower a few years ago um, and um, I had started I took out their financial statements, had a bit of a look at them. Um, and I, in doing so, I was sort of asking the client, oh, so uh, why have you got, why are you um, set up as a, as a company? Why are you trading just as a company here? What, what was the reason behind this? And the, uh, the client sort of said, oh, look, it was, yeah, tax motivated, but I think there was also some, something in there about asset protection. And I said, yeah, that, that's fine. I suppose you're chasing a lower tax rate and it's a flat rate. Um, but I said, you, you're, you're potentially missing um, a whole area of primary production concessions here because companies are a separate legal entity. When income passes through them, they change. Uh, that nature of the income changes. It changes from primary production income uh, to a dividend, you know, yeah. as a shareholder. And most of the concessions, primary production concessions, like your primary production averaging, uh, FMDs, you know, those concessions are all in individual names. Um, they're not, um, you know, they can't be accessed while you're operating company. And, yeah, we did some figures and there was some huge, huge uh, differences for when we eventually restructured in um, into a family trust. And, you know, like we could... He had some kids coming up to um, uh, turn 18 and, you know, by using uh, a family trust and making trust distributions to the children and using their low average histories, you know, when they turn, you know, in the, the five years leading up to them turning 18, you know, in the year that they turned 18, you know, we were allocating 150 grand of um, taxable income and it's still primary production income. And, you know, the tax rate was sub 
10% because yeah. of the averaging benefits, as opposed to, well, back then at the company rate, it was 30%. So, you know, 150 grand and there's a 20% difference in tax rate just from changing your structure. Well, I think, um, yeah, you need to be aware of what the structure is, is the message there and uh, how the structure operates. You know, the other thing that this uh, client has and, uh, I don't like using technical terms too much, but um, you had, had big div division 7A issues. Um, so they're were, they were basically loans that um, he'd made to himself and the tax office just doesn't, doesn't um, particularly like, like those loans. Um, they want to charge interest on them or deem a dividend. So, yeah, I suppose the key message still here is, is that just understand the structure, make sure you're set up correctly in the first place. Now... Do you come across many farmers that aren't set up appropriately? Like what's, what are they set up mostly as what you come across? Sole proprietor, yeah. partnership or? Yeah, good question, Jack. Um, look, most of them here uh, operate in a family trust or if it's not a family trust, it's a, a partnership between a family trust and either an individual or a company. Yeah. And I suppose you're getting the best of both worlds there. Very few sole uh, proprietors, um, very, very few, uh, and um, very few individual partnerships. Um, so, so where, let's say, mum and dad um, and son or son and daughter are part of a partnership. Um, it's a simple structure, that's for sure. There's no doubt about that. And with that simplicity, um, you also miss out on some of the benefits of having a, uh, I suppose, a more complicated uh, structure. And one of those is, is um, that concept of joint and several liability. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's one thing that gets missed a lot. You know, something goes wrong on, in the farming partnership and that farming partnership is exposed. All of a sudden, the individuals are exposed. There's no veil between you know, of risk back to the individuals. So all of a sudden, you know, mum and dad might have a house, um, you know, on the coast and uh, that gets captured up all in the farm business. So, yeah, most of them are family trust with a, with a corporate trustee. Um, and um, if not, it's a family trust in a structure with a company. Um, and that company has probably come into more... Uh, it's probably become more prevalent at the moment with, especially over here with yeah, certain areas, we, yeah. uh, certain areas like in Esperance um, where we've seen very high profits, um, which are transposed to, you know, like some of them down there, hundred percent equity um, clients um, on their balance sheet. And uh, with those high average histories, we're trying to access that company tax rate that's been um, chipping backwards. So um, yeah, that would be the, that'd be the common structuring issue. Yeah, good stuff. Well, for planning your tax as a farmer coming into the end of the tax year, it'd be great to nut out a few of these topics for the episode. So I'm sure the listeners can look forward to planning their tax, but trying to make it a bit more funner than what it sounds. Um, <laughs> trying try to improve your bottom line as well. Yeah, look, that's what it's all about. And look, some of it can be dry. We, we don't uh, shy away from that. We'll look, and we've got a pretty robust um, a pretty robust uh, process for going through it. And like at the moment, our guys right now, they're sitting at kitchen, they're either sitting at a kitchen table running through these tax plans with growers or yep. they're in the office here and they're punching the numbers at the moment. So, um, yeah, we've got a good process. And generally speaking, we get in early too. Um, I think that's another message there that's very important. Um, plan early, uh, get in before seeding. And then equally as important is monitor and adapt with your plans as you go. Uh, you know, don't be afraid to prepare a second estimate if the season breaks differently to what you budgeted. Um, and uh, yeah, adapt um, adapt plans. Um, yeah, ultimately very important. And probably one other thing on the on the tax planning side uh, that um, yeah, I think I've got a bit of a bugbear with is is I suppose the message of lifting your eyes up a little bit um, and looking a little bit further down um, down the path. Um, 
what I mean by that is is understanding your primary production averaging and what it's doing, you know, with uh, high years dropping off, replaced by low years or low years dropping off and replaced by high years. Um, I think those guys that go in with an appetite for tax reduction and they're reducing tax, you know, down to, um, I suppose, what I'd say unhealthy amounts, um, I don't think has got much utility. Like I'll give you an example, probably. The story will tell here. Um, I don't think I'll ever forget this one. <laughs> Client came in, uh, marginal area, two sons. Um, it was sort of, yeah, they hadn't been operating the farm for a long time, um, but they were, yeah, they were going gangbusters at it. And and the, the two boys were really charged up um, to go and buy some more land. Anyway, the... When I had a look at the um, at the financial situation of the of the grower and why they came on board was that they had a swag of FMDs um, in place, so farm management deposits. Um, so they've been putting these farm management deposits in place each year and uh, paying little or no tax in their own names. Farm management deposits were sitting there. They'd racked up about I think it was one point two mil and maxed everything out. Um, and sure enough, next door, farm comes to sale and unexpectedly. Anyway, they wandered off to the bank and said, yeah, well, we've got this money in FMDs. We'll drag them out and um, we'll buy the farm and we'll borrow the rest. Anyway, the, um, the accountant that was doing the work um, before I picked it up um, you know, did the calculations on the withdrawal of the FMDs. And because they were coming out all in one hit, it was a substantial tax bill, which actually put the farm purchase in jeopardy. But worse still, so they they decided, well, okay, the other alternative is we'll just leave the FMDs there and we'll trickle them out over time. But we asked the financial institution, you know, they asked the, the banker, you know, can we use the FMDs as security? You know, can, it, that's that's equity there. You know, you can draw down on. Unfortunately, farm management deposits can't be used as security. So this war chest that he had there was yeah, just a tax liability. I mean, mind you, look, I don't, um, and I've just written an article for Department of Ag um, or submission, if you like, um, about using FMDs as a risk management tool. They've got their place. That's absolute for, for sure. And they're not always just a tax um, dodge for want of a better term. Um, but in this circumstance, the farm next door sold um, this grower, he and his sons, yeah, didn't buy it. It sort of just went went by. And that was just a strategy around it would, just not lifting those eyes up to look further down the track and understanding what they were doing, you know, um, and uh, I think that that was just some, yeah, it was misunderstanding and, and unfortunate. And since then, we've tried to solve their problem and fix it. Yeah, well, I guess they're not the only example that you may have or what others do over here on the East Coast as well. So it's comes back to planning out your tax, talking to your advisor and being a bit more closer to the ground and having an over overview of what's going on prior to wanting to buy, jump in and buy the neighbour's farm. Yeah, for sure. That's it. And it's just, yeah, listening to your advisor, working with them closely. Um, we've got a unique position here where we're very lucky in that we have uh, the, there's a three-way relationship which is generally fairly strong on most, uh, for most growers. It's between the bank, the consultant and the accountant. Um, that's usually we're all pulling in the same direction and advising. And we all speak a slightly different language as well. You know, the <laughs> bank sometimes I think speaks Spanish, but, um, you know, like we all speak a different language. We all take a different view on it. We're all, um, yeah, providing different input. And I think it's very important to get those different views. If you don't, you're missing out. Yeah, definitely. I think you're pulling in different tools from the toolbox. Um, and using yep. them, putting the farmer a better step forward as well. So, but we better wrap it up here and keep moving forward so we can get on with the show. For a huge thing for myself and others my age, succession planning is looming. Um, 
just to have the conversation is a huge step. But what some things that you've seen yourself implementing or an example? Jack, this is this is a huge topic. And look, I don't even think I'm going to do any service. We will hardly skim on it really here. But, um, you know, it's a significant issue. And you're, you're right, like across the average age of a grower is 58 years, um, according to the last censuses. And we've looked through our um, lists and it's sort of, yeah, very similar and, and uh, it's steadily increasing. Um, but I think like tax planning um, or all planning, really, it's um, it it's uh, maybe you can live and die by this. It's it's never really too late to start planning. Um, certainly, you know, I think you can still get things moving. Um, don't feel like it's too late, but rarely is it too early either. I think the conversation needs to start. Um, yeah, early on the piece. Um, so yeah, it's just about getting in early. I, I think there's the message. Um, the other fundamental and probably a fundamental of good, uh, a good business, whether it be a business that's uh, a machinery, um, yeah, machinery dealer, or whether it's a farming business, is that uh, good communication? Um, you know, like communication that's uh, inclusive and um, practical um, there's non-emotion driven discussions um, for the family around longer term planning I, I think is ultimately that we see the really good growers those top 25% um, and, and even those below but yeah the, the really good ones are, are the communication is, is, is really key to how they operate and yeah whether it's even on a short term basis or a long term and I think the communication in my mind is, um, has got probably, well, it's, it's got two sides by definition, really. You know, talking and listening. Um, you know, the, from a talking point of view, I believe that, that there's, you know, there's, it's never, you've got to realise that it's never a safe, there's never a safe place to speak up. But on the flip side, it's never a safe place not to speak up. Um, so, I think uh, making sure that there's an environment that um, conversation is happening is is very important. And I think on the listening side of things, I don't think that necessarily people generally do that very well. Um, you know, I've found at times, you know, if there is a difficult uh, family meeting that we're having, um, you know, because one person's not listening to um, the argument of, of the other, um, I try and switch get them to switch roles so yep. in some cases they're asked the listener to repeat back in a more accurate and articulate manner uh the the talkers you know argument um it's bloody hard for them to do but what it does is it gives the the other person the terms of reference and it allows them to see through their uh their own lens see through their eyes and increasingly again it's some of this is uh broadly a generational issue you know like the, the baby boomers um you know and this is a gross generalization I'll, I'll put out here but you know you know like to be in control they're direct with their communication style that's that's well known just as well known as gen y you know communicating through more electronic means and yep. you know have a different style of things and i think that uh yeah the two do find it difficult um to to communicate so yeah communication is a key getting in and planning early um they're they're really two takeaways at a very broad level um and maybe the other side of it is is um when you're planning for that transition um yeah take a long-term view you know like traditionally well we see over here you know like most guys most uh let's say in your circumstance jack um at your age there you know management and responsibility you know you're doing you're taking that over a period of two to six years you know from when you come back um then probably the expectation is profits and 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 being introduced to trading the trading structure formally sort of over a you know three to seven or ten year period and then 
I suppose the existing assets over, you know, and we're talking about land over that 10 or can even be out to 25 year period. So I suppose the me that. message here is it's a long time, mate. Like it's, yeah. you've got to, you've got to, yeah, put those, those plans in place. And I, I mean, I was fortunate, um, you know, in some of the succession plans we were doing, like, yeah, I got to see the next generation take over in each of those steps. And that's just such a, great process to be um to be walking through like yeah. for for us that's what gets me out of bed that like when you can yeah see transitions happening and communication is good um and everyone's aware of what's happening um and you've got uh most importantly all of the family involved plus the professionals you know Often forgotten are the spouses. Yeah. Yep. Often forgotten are spouses. Often forgotten is a mediator. Children to some ex extent, you know, the younger, younger kids. Um, but yeah, you have to get, you know, there's a point in time when rubber needs to hit the road with lawyers. Um, you know, bank needs to be um, involved and, and consultant. So um, through that whole process. So get everyone that needs to be involved, involved, communicate it well and yeah, it should uh, should go fairly smoothly, but they don't all, so. Yeah, I've seen some good and some really bad occasions where it's gone wrong for the family, but that's a, another topic that we'll speak about later on in the series, breaking down succession planning with the yeah. with your firm, Byfields. So that would be really good to dive deeper into that one as well. And moving into cash flow and budgeting and forecasting, how important is this for farmers? I imagine it's quite important, but what's your take? Yeah, look, it's uh, it's very important. I, I, this time of the year is a year for uh, year for planning, um, and I, th I think uh, I think one of the one of the problems though that um, needs to be uh, addressed is that uh, you know, like you go to the ag consultant or even clients who come to me, and we go about preparing a budget, and we spend you know, six hours or so, you know, depending on the, on the, on the um, size of the farm and what's involved and the complexity, but spend a reasonable amount of the day actually going through the budget and just punching the numbers in. And then you, you know, get to the statement of position um, and then, uh, you know, to a few more, a uh, few more ratios and that sort of stuff. But um, you don't really spend a lot of your time um, on the really important things, the planning, um, you know, the scenario analysis. Uh, so I think that's one, one part is, is uh, with your budgeting, be well prepared for when you go and see your advisor, no matter who they are. Um, uh, and then I think the, the other thing is, is probably don't see enough um, budgets where there's, uh, there's, there's a, there's a average budget, a good budget prepared, a poor and an absolute disaster, you know, yeah. like a mixer, like a real. And I think that um, until you get the perspective of the numbers there, um, I don't think, um, yeah, I don't think you really uh, sort of, yeah, can make great decisions during the year. I think those that have got a good understanding of where are like a viewpoint from the very worst position can, can that allows them to make some good decisions. Yeah, so you'd start just from as the much as worst scenario possible first. Uh, no, I'd do the average budget first, but yeah. I'd, um, I'd, yeah, make sure that um, you've got an idea of the where the where the worst position is. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It'll allow you to make the most educated decision, right? Like it's, it has yeah. to by logic. Yeah, and you can only go up from there, of course. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yep. But yep, so spend time. Spend, I think the other thing is out of that budget is, you know, like uh, the budget and the statement of position is, is spend some time on those, um, on, you know, on your primary and secondary indicators of, um, of, of how well the business is performing. You know, um, you know, not only just the real simple things of, you know, your equity percentages and equity growth and um, return on capital, but yeah, take a bit of a deeper dive and um, look at some of those, um, you know, Finance costs as a percentage of interest and livestock value as a percentage of uh, livestock income, machinery value. You know, get into those and and uh, and uh, 
uh, take those numbers and and benchmark them. And probably this is one other maybe difference because I'm not aware that there's anything over east uh, yep. on this side. But we've got uh, Plan Farm and we've got Farmenco over here that um, produce uh, some pretty good benchmark booklets annually each year, um, and they're very good analysis of what's um, of uh, based on those different rainfall uh, zones that I was talking about. And they're a re really great uh, tool to use to take your numbers, compare them to, um, to others and, um, and, and make decisions based on that. And look, we all know that they're just benchmarks, you know, that there's mitigating circumstances why those numbers are a little bit skewed, but um, ultimately they're a guide and yeah. businesses you know, whether they're a farming business or not a farming business, like Byfields here, we benchmark ourselves and uh, we use that information to to make decisions on what we're doing and where we're going. Absolutely. And you don't want to be left in no man's land, not knowing where you are in yeah. response to others throughout the industry. That's right. That's so right. Leading on to the last question we've got, what platforms are farmers using over in the West that may improve how we record our numbers our bookkeeping yeah look uh jack there's probably a um in agrimaster here is uh was a program that's been around for a long time now and that uh software program was built uh from a management um on a management basis and with a lot of growers, have, and we've been advocating um, AgriMaster for a long time. Uh, a lot of growers have been using that here. Um, uh, it's, it's uh, a, I suppose, a familiar bit of software for you guys would be Phoenix. Um, yep. you know, Phoenix has got a bit more of an East Coast presence. Um, but we're now seeing with, uh, so I suppose back to AgriMaster, management-based and it, um, it's adapted over time uh, to, to to more financial based. Um, so uh, so what you know, talking the accountant's language to prepare a set of financials. Yeah. Uh, it's also been adapted for uh, business activity statements, for single touch payroll, for diesel rebates, for all of these things. Uh, adapted over time, it's kept up. One thing that we're seeing is the presence of zero, uh, and uh, zero zero. There's there's been a push towards zero uh, for, for clients um, and they're really chasing the simplicity of uh, the zero platform. And then, yeah, building on their software stack with Figured and a few others there to, to um, plug into the back of zero and it's zero is uh, cost effective. Um, and uh, probably the main thing is it's intuitive. So, uh, simple example, like you've got a telephone bill and that's, um, you know, uh, in a regular um, periodic um, manner, uh, it will code that for you. Um, yeah. yeah, without you having to do anything and, and make the right allocation and that sort of thing. The Zero versus AgriMaster versus Phoenix, um, probably not my place to say where um, the preference lies to, because it really depends on... Again, we go back to the starting point. You want to work out what outcome that you're chasing. You it's know, all individual, some, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, look, for some growers, they're, they're just wanting to uh, prepare a bass and get the numbers to the, um, to the accountant for the financial statements for the year and tax. Um, for others, they're wanting to be, uh, to, yeah, dive deeper into analysis and prepare management reports. So I think, um, yeah, it's horses for courses, really. Uh, there's no strong um, direction here or there with it. But, um, yeah, we're certainly seeing zero take, a, take a, a, a bigger and bigger market share, especially the other thing that's been, I suppose, holding back zero is because it's cloud-based and the internet in the bush has yeah. been traditionally not as good. Um that's been holding that back. But uh, now as time rolls on, we're seeing better, yeah, better internet speeds and more consistent and yeah, it's, um, it's changing. Yeah, the industry as a whole is digitizing, which is exciting to see. Um, as it comes through like 
your place of work, you're seeing that farmers are starting to digitise their bookkeeping, um, even the way they go about their day-to-day. Yeah, for sure. That like the the yeah the the uptake of technology has been has been great. Um, albeit we've still got a long way to go. Like Jack, I went over to yeah. Hanover um, yeah. to Agri Technica and had a look over there, and that was like it was for me. It was um, it was like a kid in a candy shop. <laughs> you know the the some of the technology there that they're using um, and the scale that they're using. You know, like there was. Um, and integrations as well, like Farm Three Six Five. That's um, yeah, that's run by uh, was owned by Class. You know the the using the um, the telematics out of Class and and um, integrating that with NDVI technology and uh, you know integrating that with uh, yeah like a, a broking technology for for um, or broking platform for selling selling of their grain and the scale, you know, like Russian um, producers, you know, huge, huge producers and Ukraine producers there that have just, uh, that are using this stuff. Um, and yeah, like it's one central hub. Like, it blew my mind, it absolutely blew my mind. That together with the largest drone I've ever seen. Yeah. <laughs> to, yeah, it was just, um, yeah, it was something else. I actually, one thing I recommend when COVID lifts, and if anyone gets the chance and you get the opportunity to go uh, to see this field day and see what's on display, it is just something else. But yeah, the uptake of tech is um, is is pretty good. Um, yeah, we're seeing more and more yeah more and more growers um, yeah take take it on board, embrace it. But we've still got a way to go when you compare it to the rest of the world. Yeah, definitely. We're just in the adoption phase and. Imagine when everyone's starting to use these tools, the tools that are going to only improve from the feedback from farmers. Farmers love giving feedback. If it's not working, they're going to tell you. Yeah. yeah, they do. And look, and from what I've heard, you know, from different, um, you know, like AgriWeb there and, and AgriDigital and uh, AgWorld here, you know, all of these um, people playing or organisations playing in the digital space, um, you know, they've got some good funding and uh, they, they've, they've come to the market saying that they're willing to listen, which is, which is great. Yeah, they're that's not the just charging off. I'm, that's the response I'm uh, getting from like talking to ag techs through the podcast and marketing. So it's really good to see for that aspect as well, trying to improve what they're doing. But John, yeah. thanks for coming on. We've gone over an hour, smashed it out. If I didn't speak, it was only because I was listening into what you're saying as a farmer myself and trying to improve what we're doing. But it's unreal to have the voice from WA giving us your input, but also very rings very true for us on the East Coast here as well. So looking forward to having you on the podcast throughout the year. Yeah, great. Thanks, thanks, Jack. Enjoyed it. Um, yeah, look, I probably speak a bit too much, but um, hopefully got some good messages that you guys can take away um, and a different perspective from over and over this side of the country. Yeah, definitely. It's great to have your perspective as well. And for the topics that we had, we spoke on today, we'll go into deeper depth of them further into the show. So that'd be fantastic. Ripper. Sounds good, Jack. What was discussed on today's episode does not constitute as financial advice and is intended for general advice only. Please talk to the team at Byfields or your own financial advisor about your next steps. Thanks for listening to our very first sponsor introduction with Byfields and John for coming on and also for them seeking out the Farms Advice podcast. I'm excited that they're so excited. Each time I speak to John and the team, They seem very keen to speak through the medium and also to better connect with their existing clients and also to connect with future ones. But also, if you're just looking to take a look into how you could improve your own agribusiness through different key takeaways, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of value coming up in the future from themselves at Byfields. So what you can expect from them 
and their services, a full range of taxation services, taxation planning, succession, succession planning, estate planning, structure advice, land transfers, family farm duty exemptions, capital gains tax, cash flow budgeting, forecasting, and bookkeeping. So we're going to try and make that a little bit more fun, funner than it sounds, but it's all in all to help you build a better agribusiness. No worries, we'll leave it there and thank you and we'll see you next week. And stay tuned for Beyond the Tax Return series. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.